Hey everybody, this is Alex here, coming in with our first Reverb mini-episode. It's a new format for the show, where every other week we're going to be taking a concept from rhetorical theory or rhetorical history, and breaking it down in practical terms, talking about what it means, how other rhetorical scholars have used the concept, and how we can apply it to some examples in ways that help us see new and interesting things about language in action. So this week, to get us started on our first episode, this is actually referencing a concept that has come up in a few of our previous shows. If you've ever heard us use the word stasis, or if you've heard us use the word stases, this is in reference to a concept from rhetorical theory or a a body of knowledge from rhetoric called stasis theory. So... If you've ever been in an argument with somebody where things just felt kind of totally unproductive, you feel like you're kind of talking past each other, like you're not even on the same sort of plane of reality even, like you don't have an understanding, like a common well of facts that the two of you are drawing from, or if you're just kind of talking past each other in a lot of different kinds of ways, part of that might be because you are on a different stasis with that person. So we are, of course, living in an age where it's very easy to get into some of these kind of heated arguments with people and a lot of misunderstandings abound as a result of people not perhaps living in the same sort of universe as one another, uh, as we might put it, whether that's, you know, on a partisan level or, or any other level. But it's easy to become cynical if you're engaging in these kinds of political arguments or, you know, uh, God help you if you spend your free time watching or listening to political arguments play out online. And it's easy to write off people with whom we disagree as irrational to say, well, you know, all conservatives think this way or of course you believe this, you're a liberal. You can probably name at least one friend or family member who you maybe simply avoid talking politics with because you know that it will just descend into name calling and vitriol. So the question uh, here is, how can we better understand the different ways that people are coming at these issues, the way that we're not just arguing about contentious political issues, but thinking about them? Fortunately, rhetorical theorists, especially recently, have been calling a renewed attention to an old concept that can help us understand these contentious issues and why we might disagree on them. And that set of concepts is called stasis theory. So stasis theory was first developed by Hermagoras of Temnos in around 150 BCE and refined by classical rhetoricians such as Aristotle, Cicero, Quintilian, Hermogenes. Stasis theory was originally laid out as a method of legal argumentation, so it was designed to help argue and adjudicate court cases in its original formulation. The term stasis here, which has its etymological root in the Greek for conflict, discord, or stoppage, refers to the different points that participants in a debate would maybe disagree upon, which needed to be deliberated and agreed upon before the argument could move forward. Or they formed you know, points of attack that a legal mind, a lawyer, or uh, somebody who was working in the field would use as their starting point for their argument. So the basic formulation of stasis theory includes four primary stases, or points of debate. The first one is the stasis of fact. This is sometimes called existence or conjecture. This one refers to the debate over the basic facts in a case or an issue. So what, on the most basic level, do we take to be true about this issue or this context? Did an event or an action actually occur? Can we identify and agree upon its cause or its origin? After that comes the stasis of definition, 
which calls into question how we should be classifying or talking about the elements of this argument. So for example, in a murder trial, if there's enough evidence that the defendant committed a murder, the defense might deem it a better decision to argue in favor of a plea of self-defense or plead insanity or find recourse within a kind of classification that carries a more lenient sentence. The next stasis that is to be debated after that is value or evaluation, which refers to how good or bad we should deem the events or actions in question to be. So one example from uh, Fonestock and Secor's article from the 80s that sort of rescued this term, they use the example of food stamps, that arguments around social safety net programs like food stamps often move beyond how the system itself works and jump straight to evaluating its effects or its consequences, such as whether or not the program creates an unhealthy dependency on government assistance. This is dealing with an evaluation of personal characteristics of the, you know, the people who are on food stamps or other forms of welfare, rather than you know, the economics of the, the program or anything like that, or how the system works. And then finally, at the end, comes the stasis of action or policy, which presents the question, what should we do? If we have ideally gone through each of these stasis categories and debated or agreed about how to consider the facts of the issue, then the final aspect of the situation to decide on is, what do we do about it? How should we move forward uh, knowing what we know and believing what we believe? What policies should be enacted in light of what we know? What actions should be taken in order to ameliorate a problem uh, and promote a solution? So when it was first developed in Greek antiquity, stasis theory was meant to be used as a basic framework for legal argumentation, a way of systematically coming to understand the facts of a case. In more contemporary times, rhetorical scholars have found it useful to use stasis theory as a way to analyze or even invent arguments in decision-making settings. I personally teach this actually in a lot of my own argument and writing courses as a way of teaching students how to identify claims that we read in, in different articles for the sort of the levels of the debate that they're attacking, the points of controversy that they think that they'll need to really pay a lot of attention to and argue about because of, you know, they might have a, an audience that doesn't believe them on something. By analyzing these different arguments and assessing how they address each stasis category, the theory goes, we can come to a better understanding of why certain parties disagree with one another or how appropriate an argument is to a given situation, or for the purpose of crafting new arguments, by predicting which stasis categories are going to be most controversial for your audience, so that you know what kinds of evidence and reasoning you'll need to spend the most time paying attention to. As Fonestock and Secor put it, Quote, the Stacys tell the writer where to think and not what to think. Fonestock and Secor also point out that analyzing arguments using stasis categories can tell us a great deal about the kinds of argumentation a speaker believes is most effective for a particular audience. And that's a very imperative term there. Which stasis categories are being given the most attention in an argument? And how does that relate to the audience uh, or the potential audience of that argument. So I'm quoting from Fonestock and Secor at length here. When an argument stays in one stasis rather than exploiting the full range of stasis development, the stasis it is in becomes a powerful indicator of the author's sense of the audience. For example, an arguer who wishes to move an audience to action may simply argue facts into place to allow the context or end allow the context of the argument and the audience's assumptions to do the rest. 
So, I'm going to illustrate how stasis theory can be useful for analyzing examples of rhetoric and argumentation using a recent text that was involved in a major political controversy, the confirmation hearings of the now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So, of course, just to give a little bit of context for this, uh, this is, at the time of this recording, still a relatively recent development. Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Donald Trump earlier in the summer. His confirmation hearing rolled around this fall, at which time he was accused of sexual assault by Christine Blasey Ford, Deborah Ramirez, and Julie Swetnick. What I want to read from as an example of using stasis theory for analysis is the op-ed that Brett Kavanaugh himself wrote in the Wall Street Journal. This one is titled, I am an independent, impartial judge. And so as I read through this, I'm going to go over particularly some of the stasis claims that I see being made or in this op-ed and talk about the implications for what is being focused on, what is not being focused on, and what that means for the audience that Kavanaugh might be addressing in this op-ed. So Kavanaugh begins his op-ed, you know, by giving just some kind of some color to his story, you know, talking about how his situation when he was involved in his confirmation hearing and the testimony. But he really starts out giving us a few definitions. He makes some definitional claims directly in his op-ed. I'm quoting here, he says, A good judge must be an umpire, a neutral and impartial arbiter who favors no political party, litigant, or policy. He goes on to say in a later paragraph, As Justice Kennedy, which is his predecessor, the one who just stepped down, showed us, a judge must be independent, not swayed by public pressure. Our independent judiciary is the crown jewel of our constitutional republic. The Supreme Court is the last line of defense for the separation of powers and for the rights and liberties guaranteed by the Constitution. So again, a lot of definitional claims going on in here about not only what a good what it means to be a good judge, which deals a lot with matters of independence, not being partisan, not being swayed by public pressure, as well as the, the definition of an independent judiciary, and of course, a kind of evaluative claim built in there for why that's so essential to a constitutional republic. He then goes on to give a further definition of the Supreme Court itself. He writes, quote, The Supreme Court must never be viewed as a partisan institution. The justices do not sit on opposite sides of an aisle. They do not caucus in separate rooms. As I have said repeatedly, if confirmed to the court, I would be part of a team of nine committed to deciding cases according to the Constitution and laws of the United States. I would always strive to be a team player. So again, more definitions going on here, and really, again, a lot of emphasis happening on this sort of idea of being nonpartisan, of being independent and impartial, which is, of course, a direct callback to the title. Again, reminder, his title itself is uh, an evaluative claim. I am an independent, impartial judge, where he's giving a self-evaluation. But essentially what he's doing here is he's building up these definitions of not only who a Supreme Court justice should be, but also the parameters of values that define the Supreme Court as an institution. And is then, of course, you know, aligning himself with those values to say, you know, the court and this position embody these values. I embody these values. Therefore, you know, I am fit for this position. After that, he goes into uh, more of an evaluation of himself. So he says, going forward, you can count on me to be the same kind of judge in person I have been for my entire 28-year legal career. Hardworking, even-keeled, open-minded, independent, and dedicated to the Constitution and the public good. So here he's giving a lot of sort of evaluative terms that describe 
how he would, you know, evaluate himself as a judge, hardworking, even keeled, open-minded, independence. He's doing a lot of work with keyword mapping across this speech. He's repeating a lot of those same values and key terms that we talked about before. And then finally, this is the very end of his op-ed, where he gives some evaluation and action claims. He says, I revere the Constitution. I believe that an independent and impartial judiciary is essential to our constitutional republic. If confirmed by the Senate to serve on the Supreme Court, I will keep an open mind in every case and always strive to preserve the Constitution of the United States and the American rule of law. So the evaluation here is, of course, that independent and impartial judiciary is sort of this essential element for the republic. The action here, of course, is that if confirmed by the Senate to serve on the Supreme Court, that's the action that he is implicitly calling to be taken. He's saying that's, again, an evaluative claim that he will be keeping an open mind in every case. So what I want to suggest is that this may have actually been a strategic move within the text that was geared towards Kavanaugh's intended audience. Of course, he doesn't name who that is, but we can put together who it might have been through a couple of context clues. So, of course, this op-ed was written in the Wall Street Journal, which is a publication that is generally thought to be a little bit more conservative-leaning, but it is also kind of a paper of record for people in policy circles, both in uh, New York, Washington, D.C., kind of these places of major power in the U.S., and particularly for people in positions of political power. This is something that is actually that is read uh, and known to be read by politicians in America. So in, with that in mind, we can also ask ourselves, what is the action that we are being compelled to, to take here? And more particularly, who is being compelled to take that action? And who could take that action? So as I referenced just above in my analysis here, where he says his only claim of action that is implied is that he should be confirmed by the Senate to serve on the Supreme Court. That is ultimately who has the ability to take action on his behalf in this case. So we can perhaps surmise we might be able to you know, read the, his primary audience as being senators, people who are actually in the Senate or other people who are in positions of political power who have influence over senators. I want to suggest we might read this article or this op-ed as an apologia to any senators who may have heard Kavanaugh's testimony and been made skeptical about his impartiality, particularly due to his tone, his at-time kind of partisan words, the proceedings he claimed to be revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and of course his behavior towards some of the other Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was at times pretty uh, hostile. So we might usefully read this as being targeted toward any swing Senate votes, such as Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, uh, and Jeff Flake, as well as Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who actually did flip and voted for him. So whether or not it was actually Kavanaugh's intention, this op-ed used a lot of stasis claims to reframe the controversy surrounding his confirmation as being based on a question of his independence as a jurist and his partisan stance, or rather lack of partisan stance, as he's claiming here, rather than about his personal improprieties tied in with the multiple allegations of assault against him. 
it's a consequential decision, right, to reframe the debate in terms of whether or not somebody is impartial, you know, on a partisan level, rather than, you know, whether or not you have perjured yourself in lying to the court about your recollections of things or about what you know about uh, your past, as well as uh, some of the improprieties that are uh, being alleged against you. In summation, what we can see from this is that stasis theory really helps us to read the context for an argument. Why might a speaker or writer be making the claims that they are? And who are they making their argument for? What kinds of assumptions or topical focuses are they relying on as a primary appeals uh, to that audience? So I hope that this has been a helpful little mini explainer episode on stasis theory. I think it's probably one of the most interesting and probably useful frameworks from rhetorical theory that can be applied to pretty much any argument and can give you some interesting things to look at. Look forward to more of these. Like I said before, we'll try to do one of these just about every other week between our larger scale episodes where we're doing analysis and uh, interviews, but we'll hopefully have some more concepts coming up for you soon. Thanks, everybody. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Our co-producers are Ryan Mitchell, Colleen Storm, Ilona Altman, and Caitlin Rossi. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.